0: Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here's our question dissection for today.
1: All right, this is the Step 2 Secrets podcast with author of Step 2 Secrets, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I am Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast. We have a question here before getting into today's section of Step 2 Secrets, courtesy of Elsevier. A man is undergoing a neurologic test for manual dexterity. He's asked to place pegs into a pegboard. He's placed 45 pegs into the board. Performance on the test is normally distributed and the test has a mean of 60 and a standard deviation of 15. Which of the following percentiles denotes this patient's performance? All right. So our options here are A, less than 1%, B, 16%, C, 50%, D, 84%, and E, 99.7%. And the answer here is B, 16%.
0: So this is a question where it is just really helpful to understand how standard deviations fall around the mean. So one standard deviation contains 68% of the values in a normal distribution. And that means If you start right in the middle at the 50th percentile, or the mean, half of that 68%, so 34% is going to fall above the 50th percentile and 34% below. And then two standard deviations contains 95% of the values in a normal distribution, and three standard deviations contains 99.7% of the values in a normal distribution. So this one is almost just memorizing. I think if you know those numbers, it really helps uh, facilitate questions like this. And so what's happening in this question is the mean is set at 60, and the standard deviation is 15. So we know that 34% of the scores are going to be from 45 to 60, and 34% of the scores are going to be from 60 to 75. So if we peg this patient at 45...
1: Or rather, he puts in enough pegs at 45.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, And that means that the correct answer then becomes 16th percentile, because you just subtract 34 from 50 to get that 16%. Makes sense.
1: Should we go through the rest of these or just dive into this section of Step 2 Secrets?
0: I think the, uh, the answer is the answer in this case, and it's time to get on to the rest of this chapter of Step 2 Secrets. All right, then here we go. This is Dr. Ted O'Connell, and this is Chapter 3, the biostatistics chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Number one, how is the sensitivity of a test defined? What are highly sensitive tests used for clinically? Sensitivity is defined as the ability of a test to detect disease and mathematically as the number of true positives divided by the number of people with the disease. Tests with high sensitivity are used for disease screening. False positives occur, but the test does not miss many people with the disease. It has a low false negative rate. Number two, how is the specificity of a test defined? What are highly specific tests used for clinically? Specificity is defined as the ability of a test to detect health or non-disease, and mathematically as the number of true negatives divided by the number of people without the disease. Tests with high specificity are used for disease confirmation. False negatives occur, but the test does not identify anyone who is actually healthy as sick. It has a low false positive rate. The ideal confirmatory test must have high sensitivity and high specificity. Otherwise, people with the disease may be called healthy. Number three, explain the concept of a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. The trade-off between sensitivity and specificity is a classic statistics question. For example, you should understand how changing the cutoff glucose value in screening for diabetes Or changing the value of any of several screening tests will change the number of true and false negatives as well as true and false positive results. If the cutoff glucose value is raised, fewer people will be identified as diabetic. There will be more false negatives and fewer false positives. Whereas if the cutoff glucose value is lowered, more people will be identified as diabetic, fewer false negatives, and more false positives. As an example, If the diagnostic threshold for a fasting blood sugar for diabetes were raised from greater than or equal to 125 milligrams per deciliter to greater than or equal to 300 milligrams per deciliter, most people with diabetes would be missed, a low sensitivity because a patient with a blood sugar of 285 milligrams per deciliter would be negative for diabetes according to this criterion. In addition, The test would be very specific for patients with blood sugar greater than or equal to 300 milligrams per deciliter. A patient would certainly have diabetes if he or she had a positive test. Number four, define positive predictive value. On what does it depend? When a test is positive for disease, the positive predictive value measures how likely it is that the patient has the disease. The probability of having a condition given a positive test. Positive predictive value is calculated mathematically by dividing the number of true positives by the total number of people with a positive test. Positive predictive value depends on the prevalence of a disease. The higher the prevalence, the higher the positive predictive value, and the sensitivity and specificity of a test. For example, an overly sensitive test that gives more false positives has a lower positive predictive value. Number five. Define negative predictive value. On what does it depend? When a test comes back negative for disease, the negative predictive value measures how likely it is that the patient is healthy and does not have the disease, the probability of not having a condition given a negative test. It is calculated mathematically by dividing the number of true negatives by the total number of people with a negative test. Negative predictive value also depends on the prevalence of the disease and the sensitivity and specificity of the test. The higher the prevalence, the lower the negative predictive value. In addition, an overly sensitive test with many false positives leads to a higher negative predictive value. Number six, define attributable risk. How is it measured? Attributable risk is the number of cases of a disease attributable to one risk factor. In other words, the amount by which the incidence of a condition is expected to decrease if the risk factor in question is removed. For example, if the incidence rate of lung cancer is 1 in 100 in the general population and 10 in 100 in smokers, the attributable risk of smoking in causing lung cancer is 9 out of 100, assuming a properly matched control group. Number seven. Develop the habit of drawing a two-by-two table for step two statistics questions. So we're going to go through some values here. This is one part of the book that's probably better if you just look at it as opposed to doing audio. But for the two-by-two table across the top in the x-axis is A on the left, B on the right, and then below that C and D. So the sensitivity is A over A plus C. Specificity is d over b plus d. Positive predictive value is a over a plus b. Negative predictive value is d over c plus d. Odds ratio is the sum of a times d over the sum of b times c. And then relative risk and attributable risk. I'm just going to refer you to the book because it's a long formula that's just too hard to uh, say verbally. Number eight, define relative risk. From what types of studies can it be calculated? Relative risk compares the disease risk in people exposed to a certain factor with the disease risk in people who have not been exposed to the factor in question. Relative risk can be calculated only after prospective or experimental studies. It cannot be calculated from retrospective data. If a step two question asks you to calculate the relative risk from retrospective data, The answer is cannot be calculated or none of the above. Number nine, what is a clinically significant value for relative risk? Any value for relative risk other than one is clinically significant. For example, if the relative risk is 1.5, a person is 1.5 times more likely to develop the condition if exposed to the factor in question. If the relative risk is 0.5, the person is only half as likely to develop the condition when exposed to the factor. In other words, the factor protects the person from developing the disease. Number 10. Define odds ratio. From what types of studies is it calculated? Odds ratio attempts to estimate relative risk with retrospective studies, for example, case control. An odds ratio compares two factors: one the incidence of disease in persons exposed to the factor and the incidence of disease in persons not exposed to the factor. And two, the incidence of disease in persons unexposed to the factor and the incidence of non-disease in persons exposed to the factor to see whether there is a difference between the two. As with relative risk, values other than one are significant. The odds ratio is a less than perfect way to estimate relative risk which can be calculated only from prospective or experimental studies. Number 11, what do you need to know about standard deviation for the USMLE? You need to know that for a normal or bell-shaped distribution, the mean plus or minus one standard deviation contains 68% of the values, the mean plus or minus two standard deviations contains 95% of the values, and the mean plus or minus three standard deviation contains 99.7% of the values. The classic question gives the mean and standard deviation and asks what percentage of values will be above a given value. For example, if the mean score on a test is 80 and the standard deviation is five, 68% of the scores will be within five points of 80, that is scores of 75 to 85 and 95% of the scores will be within 10 points of 80, that is, scores of 70 to 90. The question may ask what percentage of scores are over 90. The answer is 2.5%, because 2.5% of the scores fall below 70, and 2.5% of the scores are over 90. Variations of this question are common. Number 12, define mean, median, and mode. The mean is the average value. The median is the middle value. And the mode is the most common value. A question may give several numbers and ask for their mean, median, and mode. For example, if the question gives the numbers 2, 2, 4, and 8, the mean is the average of the four numbers. That is 16 divided by 4, which is 4. The median is the middle value. Because there are four numbers, there is no true middle value. Therefore, take the average between the two middle numbers, 2 and 4, so the median is 3. The mode is 2 because the number 2 appears twice, more times than any other value. Remember that in a normal distribution, mean equals median equals mode. Number 13, what is a skewed distribution? How does it affect mean, median, and mode? A skewed distribution implies that the distribution is not normal. In other words, the data do not conform to a perfect bell-shaped curve. Positive skew is an asymmetric distribution with an excess of high values. In other words, the tail of the curve is on the right. The mean is greater than the median, is greater than the mode. Negative skew is an asymmetric distribution with an excess of low values. In other words, the tail of the curve is on the left. The mean is less than the median is less than the mode. Because they are not normal distributions, standard deviation and mean are less meaningful values. Number 14. Define test reliability. How is it related to precision? What reduces reliability? Practically speaking, the reliability of a test is synonymous with its precision. Reliability measures the reproducibility and consistency of a test. For example, if the test has good inter-rater reliability, the person taking the test will get the same score if two different people administer the same test. Random error reduces reliability and precision. For example, limitation in significant figures. Number 15, define test validity. How is it related to accuracy? What reduces validity? Practically speaking, the validity of a test is synonymous with its accuracy. Validity measures the trueness of measurement. In other words, whether the test measures what it claims to measure. For example, if a valid IQ test is administered to a genius, the test should not indicate that he or she has an intellectual disability. Systematic error reduces validity and accuracy. Number 16. Define correlation coefficient. What is the range of its values? A correlation coefficient measures to what degree two variables are related. The value of the correlation coefficient ranges from minus 1 to plus 1. Number 17, true or false? A correlation coefficient of minus 0.6 is a stronger correlation coefficient than positive 0.4. True. The important factor is determining the strength of a relationship between two variables. This is distance of the value from zero. A correlation coefficient of zero equates to no association whatsoever. The two variables are totally unrelated. A correlation coefficient of positive one equates to a perfect positive correlation. When one variable increases, so does the other, whereas minus one corresponds to a perfect negative correlation. When one variable increases, the other decreases. Therefore, the absolute value indicates the strength of the correlation. For example, the strength of negative 0.3 is the same as that of positive 0.3. Number 18, define confidence interval. Why is it used? When you take a set of data from a subset of the population and calculate the mean, You may want to say that it is equivalent to the mean for the whole population. In fact, however, the two means are usually not exactly equal. The confidence interval of 95%, the value used in most medical literature before data are accepted by the medical community, indicates that there is a 95% certainty that the mean for the entire population is within a certain range, usually two standard deviations of the experimental or derived mean calculated from the subset of the population examined. For example, if the heart rate of 100 people is sampled and the mean is calculated as 80 beats per minute with a standard deviation of two, the confidence interval, also known as confidence limits, is written as 76 is less than x is less than 84 equals 0.95. In other words, there is a 95% certainty that the mean heart rate of the whole population, X, is between 76 and 84. That is within two standard deviations of the mean. Number 19, what five types of studies should you know for the step two exam? From highest to lowest quality and desirability, number one, experimental studies, two, prospective studies, three, retrospective studies, four, case series, and five, prevalence surveys. Number 20, what are experimental studies? Experimental studies are the gold standard. They compare two equal groups in which one variable is manipulated and its effect is measured. Experimental studies use double-blinding or at least single-blinding and well-matched controls to ensure accurate data. It is not always possible to do experimental studies because of ethical concerns. Number 21. What are prospective studies? Why are they important? Prospective studies, also known as observational, longitudinal, cohort, incidence, or follow-up studies, involve choosing a sample and dividing it into two groups based on the presence or absence of a risk factor and following the groups over time to see what diseases they develop. For example, individuals with and without asymptomatic hypercholesterolemia may be followed to determine if those with hypercholesterolemia have a higher incidence of myocardial infarction later in life. The relative risk and incidence can be calculated from this type of study. Prospective studies are time-consuming and expensive, but practical for common diseases. Number 22, what are retrospective studies? Discuss their advantages and disadvantages. Retrospective or case control studies choose population samples after the fact according to the presence, cases, or absence controls of disease. Information can be collected about risk factors. For example, you can compare individuals with lung cancer and individuals without lung cancer to determine if those with lung cancer smoked before they developed lung cancer. In a retrospective study, an odds ratio can be calculated, but true relative risk cannot be calculated and incidents cannot be measured. Compared with prospective studies, retrospective studies are less expensive, less time consuming, and more practical for rare diseases. Number 23, what is a case series study? How is it used? A case series study simply describes the clinical presentation of people with a certain disease. This type of study is good for extremely rare diseases, as are retrospective studies, and may suggest a need for a retrospective or prospective study. Number 24, what is a prevalence survey? How is it used? A prevalence cross-sectional survey looks at the prevalence of a disease and the prevalence of risk factors. When used to compare two different cultures or populations, prevalence survey may suggest a possible cause of a disease. The hypothesis then can be tested with a prospective study. For example, researchers have found a higher prevalence of colon cancer and a diet higher in fat in the United States compared with lower prevalence of colon cancer and a diet lower in fat in Japan. Number 25, what is the difference between incidence and prevalence? Incidence is the number of new cases of a disease in a unit of time, generally one year, but any time frame can be used. The incidence of a disease is equal to the absolute or total risk of developing a condition as distinguished from relative or attributable risk. Prevalence is the total number of cases of a disease, new or old, at a certain point in time. Number 26. If a disease can be treated only to the point that people can be kept alive longer without being cured, what happens to the incidence and prevalence of the disease? This is the classic question about incidence and prevalence on the Step 2 exam. Nothing happens to the incidence. The same number of people contract the disease every year, but the prevalence will increase because people with the disease live longer. For short-term diseases, such as influenza, the incidence may be higher than the prevalence, whereas for chronic diseases, such as diabetes or hypertension, the prevalence is greater than the incidence. Number 27, define epidemic. In an epidemic, the observed incidence greatly exceeds the expected incidence. Number 28, when are a chi-square test, T-test, and analysis of variance test used? All of these tests are used to compare different sets of data. A chi-square test is used to compare percentages or proportions, non-numeric or nominal data. T-test is used to compare two means. An analysis of variance is used to compare three or more means. Number 29, what is the difference between nominal, ordinal, and continuous types of data? Nominal data have no numeric value. For example, the day of the week. Ordinal data give a ranking, but no quantification. For example, class rank, which does not specify how far number one is ahead of number two. Most numerical measurements are continuous data. For example, weight, blood pressure, and age. This distinction is important because of question 28. Chi-square tests must be used to compare nominal or ordinal data whereas a t-test or analysis of variance test is used to compare continuous data. Number 30, define p-value. The significance of the p-value is high yield on the step 2 exam. If p is less than 0.05 for a set of data, there is less than a 5% chance that the data were obtained by random error or chance. If p is less than 0.01, there is less than 1%. For example, If the blood pressure in a control group is 180 over 100 millimeters of mercury, but falls to 120 over 70 after drug X is given, a p-value less than 0.10 means that the chance that this difference was due to random error or chance is less than 10%. It also means, however, that the chance that the result is random and unrelated to the drug may be as high as 9.99%. A P value less than 0.05 is generally used as a cutoff for statistical significance in the medical literature. Number 31. What three points about p-values should be remembered for the step two exam? Number one, a study with a p-value less than 0.05 may still have serious flaws. Two, a low p-value does not imply causation. Three, a study that has statistical significance does not necessarily have clinical significance. For example, if drug X can lower blood pressure from 130 over 80 to 129 over 80 with a P of less than 0.0001, drug X is unlikely to be used because the result is not clinically important given the minimal blood pressure reduction, the costs, and probable side effects. Number 32. Explain the relationship of the p value to the null hypothesis. The p value is also related to the null hypothesis, the hypothesis of no difference. For example, in a study of hypertension, the null hypothesis says that the drug under investigation does not work. Therefore, any difference in blood pressure is due to random error or chance. If the drug works well and lowers blood pressure by 60 points, the null hypothesis must be rejected because clearly the drug works. When p is less than 0.05, the null hypothesis can be rejected with confidence because the p-value indicates that there is less than a 5% chance that the null hypothesis is correct. If the null hypothesis is wrong, the difference in blood pressure is not due to chance. Therefore, it must be due to the drug. In other words, the p-value represents the chance of making a type 1 error, that is, claiming an effect or difference when none exists, Or rejecting the null hypothesis when it is true. If P is less than 0.07, there's less than 7% chance of a type 1 error if a true difference not due to random error in blood pressure between the control and experimental groups is claimed. Number 33. What is a type 2 error? In a type 2 error, the null hypothesis is accepted when in fact it is false. In the above example, this would mean that the antihypertensive drug works, but the experimenter says that it does not. Number 34. What is the power of a study? How do you increase the power of a study? Power measures the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis when it is false. The best way to increase power is to increase the sample size. Number 35. What are confounding variables? Confounding variables are unmeasured variables that affect both the independent variable and dependent variables. For example, an experimenter measures the number of ashtrays owned and the incidence of lung cancer and finds people that have lung cancer have more ashtrays. He concludes that ashtrays cause lung cancer. Smoking tobacco is a confounding variable because it causes the increase in ashtrays and lung cancer. Number 36. Discuss non-random or non-stratified sampling. City A and City B can be compared, but they may not be equivalent. For example, if City A is a retirement community and City B is a college town, of course City A will have higher rates of mortality and heart disease if the groups are not stratified into appropriate age-specific comparisons. Number 37, what is non-response bias? Non-response bias occurs when people do not return printed surveys or answer the phone in a phone survey. If non-response accounts for a significant percentage of the results, the experiment will suffer. The first strategy in this situation is to visit or call the non-responders repeatedly. If this strategy is unsuccessful, list the non-responders as unknown in the data analysis and determine if any results can be salvaged. Never make up or assume responses. Number 38, explain lead time bias. Lead time bias is due to time differentials. The classic example is a cancer screening test that claims to prolong survival compared with older survival data, when in fact the difference is due only to earlier detection and not to improved treatment or prolonged survival. Number 39, explain admission rate bias. The classic admission rate bias occurs when an experimenter compares the mortality rates for myocardial infarction or some other disease in hospitals A and B and concludes that hospital A has a higher mortality rate, but the higher rate may be due to tougher admission criteria at hospital A, which admits only the sickest patients with myocardial infarction. Hence, hospital A has higher mortality rates, although their care may be superior. The same bias can apply to morbidity and mortality rates for a surgeon if he or she takes on only difficult cases. Number 40, explain recall bias. Recall bias is a risk in all retrospective studies. When people cannot remember exactly, they may inadvertently overestimate or underestimate risk factors. For example, John died of lung cancer and his angry widow remembers him as smoking like a chimney whereas Mike died of causes not related to smoking, and his loving wife denies that he smoked much. In fact, both men smoked one pack per day. Number 41. Explain interviewer bias. Interviewer bias occurs in the absence of blinding. The scientist receives a large amount of money to perform a study and wants to find a difference between cases and controls. Thus, he or she may inadvertently call the same patient comment or outcome not significant in the control group and significant in the treatment group. Number 42, what is unacceptability bias? Unacceptability bias occurs when people do not admit to embarrassing behavior. For example, they may claim to exercise more than they do to please the interviewer, or they may claim to have taken experimental medications when they actually spat them out. That's the end of this biostatistics chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at insidetheboards.com including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets.